Hi, it's Raghu back, and I'm back with Joseph Goldstein. Everybody knows Joseph. <laughs> I've gotten him from the deep retreat in the deep cold <laughs> of Massachusetts. Welcome, Joseph. Thank you. It is pretty cold today, yeah. <laughs> below zero. <laughs> really? Yeah, the whole eastern half of the country. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of things I want to talk about today. Um, but uh, I'll tell you a, a little story. Uh, your good friend and and partner, uh, Sharon Salzberg, partner in Vipassana, along with Jack Cornfield. Uh, so Sharon and I and uh, a comedian named Duncan Trussell, who we work with uh, a lot, who's very... Uh, a combination of uh, comedy and spiritual consciousness he likes to talk about. He loves Ram Dass and all that. So we did a thing also with Ethan Nickturn in New York at ABC Theater, Deepak uh, Chopra Theater. And uh, and so at one... So I had this little discussion with her, which emanated from something previous, where this same comedian, Duncan, turned to her one day and said... Sharon, what is your practice day to day? So she sat there in that <laughs> present manner that she has, and she said, I get up, I go down, and I sit on my, on my meditation pillow, and I get real. <laughs> so then we had a discussion <laughs> around that. And in this, in this thing, which was in November, I said to her, remember, I, I reminded her of this story, and I said, so I think we need to you know, flesh this out a little bit about getting, get real. And she, she changed it. She said, well, I think it's more like getting real is what, <laughs> what we're talking about. You know, and we're, we're talking about um, the difference between our actual experience and the story we tell, each, we tell ourselves and the narratives that we tell ourselves and, uh, and, and getting at the unadorned experience and, and my thoughts, uh, and in fact, uh, many of the listeners know, I was in India recently, and I, I, th that was a day-to-day -day thing for me to just complete talk about, to be here now completely, be in the moment, get real, and and I seeing all the projections and the manipulations, <laughs> it's it's just exceptional if you spend enough internal time. So I, I would just love your comments on uh, i mean i could say to you what do you do to get real joseph on a day-to-day -day basis <laughs> well i i frame it to myself a little bit differently uh, i don't know whether it's because of uh just the inclination of my mind or where my practice is at now um but for me the uh, what I've become very interested in and what I'm observing a lot, you know, in myself and also in working with, uh, you know, lots of meditators is the tendency uh, underneath kind of the, the simple matter, although pervasive one of simply getting lost in our stories. But even when we're not lost, you know, even if we've gotten real to the extent of being present, Yes. Yeah, so be, beside the, you know, the more common uh, situation of 
just being lost in our stories and projections as everything Sharon had mentioned. Uh, for me, there's a kind of an underlying um, process that's going on that has become really interesting to me. Mm. And, th and that is even when, you know, I'm being present in, whether it's in the formal sitting or just in the course of a day, uh, I've noticed, and again, in myself and both, both in myself and with lots of other people, there's, there's a very strong tendency to lean into the unfolding process, even on a moment to moment level. So, you know, we're with something in order for it to become something else. Mm -hmm. We're with some discomfort in the body and we're being, you know, we're trying to be mindful of it in order for it to open or in order for it to diminish or you know, we're with some emotion in order for it to do something or other. Uh, so there's very often that what I call leaning into the process or the in order to mindset, as if we're practicing in this moment in order for something else to happen. Uh, and so this energetic leaning in, um, in, in Buddhist jargon, you know, to use the kind of classical description it's really craving for becoming mm. you know we're, we're in this moment but we want to become something else so we want the moment to become something else uh, and this is very very pervasive you know it, it's often characterizes most of our meditation practice um, and so what i've been working on and interested in is just seeing seeing the mind, noticing that, uh, you could say that tendency of the mind, the, that energetic leaning into the next moment, you know, even mm. in, in, in walking, you know. I've been really thinking in and about the uh, idea of leaning in and just imagining myself in, in my sitting practice, in my day-to-day -day life, and some gargantuan <laughs> stuff has come up about mm -hmm. how much I do that yes, and without yes. knowing about it, without yes. being aware of it. that And it's part, there's desire involved with it, is expectation involved with it, there's attachment involved. I mean, there's a host of, of things. Yes. I think you need to flesh this out a little bit more here. <laughs> okay. So let me, let me uh, put the largest framework around it first. Uh, you know, so in the Buddhist teachings of the Four Noble Truths, the, fir the first truth, of course, is the truth of dukkha, or the unsatisfying nature of changing phenomena. You know, and the second noble truth is that of craving, being the cause of the suffering, or the unsatisfying uh, nature. Uh, and the third noble truth is the end of craving, you know, to come to some place of peace. Mm. So when the Buddha described different kinds of craving, he talked about the one, one that is most obvious, of course, is the craving for sense pleasures. You know, we like, we like pleasant experiences and pleasant sense experiences. So that's fairly obvious and uh, familiar. The second kind of craving he talked about is craving for becoming. Mm -hmm. Now on one level, and in some way it may be the most, uh, I don't know if superficial is the right word, but uh, one aspect of it 
in classical teachings is when people have a desire to become, uh, to have a good rebirth, you know, in some favorable circumstances in this life or in the heaven realms or whatever. So it's craving for becoming on that level. But what I've found and something that's more uh, meaningful to me and more immediately applicable is when I've really seen the craving for becoming on a moment to moment level, mm. you know, and I've seen it very clearly in my meditation practice formally, but also in the course of the day. So for example, you know, we can be sitting and we're just, we're just calmly, you know, feeling our breath. And we think, yeah, I'm just being mindful in breath, out breath. But when I look carefully, you know, I can be feeling the in-breath in order to become more calm or in order to get more concentrated or feeling the in-breath in order to get to the out-breath. Mm. I mean, just it's an energetic leaning into the unfolding process. Right? And that's a kind of craving for becoming. Mm. It's like we're in this experience, but we're wanting it to become something else. Mm. So this is very, as I say, it's very pervasive. You know, it's, in fact, we often, uh, that craving for becoming on that level really has, in many ways, co-opted our meditation practice. We think that that's what meditation should be, wanting to become, as I say, more concentrated or more, more calm or whatever. So I had an experience that really highlighted um, this tendency and in quite a, in quite a radical way, it, it, in some way it revolutionized my meditation practice. And it came from recalling a line that we find very often in the Buddhist discourses, in the suttas. It's a line that I had read many, many times and always just took it as a simple description of how things were. And the line is that whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. So that's, you know, it's obvious. Uh, it's something we've all heard in the context of spiritual teachings, you know, endless number of times whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. So for years, I just took it as a simple restatement of an obvious truth. But in one sitting, I was on retreat, this line came to mind. And instead of, instead of just dismissing it or undervaluing it, you know, simply as a description, I took it as an instruction. And so I, I used that line, I brought that sentence into my mind in the very midst of my meditation practice. So I'm just sitting and feeling my body, feeling the breath, feeling all the flow of changing sensations. And I dropped it, that line into the, to the mix. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. So the effect of doing that was to realize that because whatever will arise will also pass away, there is absolutely nothing to want. Because whatever we might want is just going to be another changing phenomenon. 
so this is particularly um, this was particularly useful not so much in the large the con the larger context of our lives you know because we want different things and they serve different purposes so it's not on that level this not wanting that, that i found so radically helpful was to drop into that not wanting on the moment to moment level in my meditation that there is nothing to want because whatever I might want is just going to be another part of the changing flow of phenomena. And what happened in that moment was there was, there was a moment of dropping back from wanting anything in realizing that whatever it is would also pass away. And that highlighted the truth of the meditation being the practice of not wanting. Mm. It's not the practice of becoming. <laughs> Do you follow? And, and so the practice has really become practicing not wanting, letting mm. things arise and pass by themselves without that leaning into, that energetic leaning into becoming. Mm. So that's sort of where, in terms of becoming real, <laughs> It's more in that vein that has, at least at the present, has really captured my interest. Yeah. And, and this not wanting, these moments of not wanting, really is a taste of the third noble truth. The end of suffering comes about through the end of craving. Mm. So it really all fit together in a, in a quite uh, beautiful and amazing way. Do you think, I don't know if this matches up in any way so i don't even know if the tradition is that different but uh i have spent time in india with uh, a yogi that uh, we met recently a, a really an accomplished guy who at 12 went off into a cave for 20 25 years off and on in the jungle and uh ha has a deep deep realization and and he he talks about it, I think the Hindi term is icha and he go and he, he speaks very little English but just enough no icha no choice choiceless mm -hmm. hot cold food mm -hmm. no no choice does that fit in here a little bit with what we're talking about not wanting well yeah I think it does you know that that, that very same uh understanding was expressed uh, beautifully you know in the teachings of the third zen ancestor you know uh, in his Patreon. teaching on the faith mind where it says the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences hmm. make the slightest distinction and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart so it's the same thing preferences or choice really has to do with wanting want <laughs> we're in one experience and we want something else so again, I just want to reiterate that depending on what level of circumstance we're in, sometimes we need to make choices. So I'm not suggesting that, you know, we go through life without making any choice at all. Uh, and I would imagine that, you know, yogi in India uh, would be making some choices during oh, yeah. the day, yeah. you know, go left or go right or whatever. 
Yeah. Uh, but on, on the meditative level, it's really a profound instruction. And now we can, we can experience what that is like, you know, in, in meditation and, and many times throughout the day. Yeah. I think with him, it was also about, uh, he's obviously reached a state of, of great non-attachment. And mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's, it's about attachment right. more than yes. anything. But, yeah. but in terms of where it rang a bell as you were speaking about not wanting and coming to that conclusion over that uh, shloka, uh, the, the idea of choice of, is to me part of not wanting, of, of, of letting go yes. of that particular attachment. Yes. in the process specifically around meditation yes I, and uh, you know what you said what you said earlier on uh, it really ties in and it highlights all the ways expectation you know comes into our practice and that that's another kind of leaning or wanting rather than seeing that the the very thing we want <laughs> or the aspiration really in terms of the teaching and liberation is about not wanting yeah. you know non-craving yeah and and to one of one of the other things that was very valuable for me which i learned uh, earlier on you know than this last little piece you know we've all heard and you know it's part of the buddhist teachings uh, and the buddha's in fact enlightenment song after his great enlightenment under the Bodhi tree um, you know he's, he supposedly uttered this verse uh, oh house builder you have now been seen you will build no house again that is the house of self or the house of ego um, and uh, that that verse ends with achieved is the end of craving you know so this was really his song of enlightenment and for myself and i think for many others kind of the end of craving often becomes some far off goal you know that okay if we practice long enough (laughs) maybe like that yogi in india we'll come to the end of craving and so it becomes a distant a distant goal but what i realized uh at, at one point was that we can practice the end of craving for short moments many times that we don't have to postpone it until it's all uprooted right which may be a while at least in my case oh. uh, <laughs> uh, but we can actually taste it and practice it you know on a moment-to-moment level in the way that i had just described letting go of that wanting letting go of that craving even if it's just for a moment Uh, but that that moment is very revealing and very powerful work in progress is 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 uh is a good way to state it exactly yeah and uh, well many people do have uh, especially first coming on to the path or even experienced people there is that grand expectation that there's going to be radical uh, shifts in consciousness, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's rather a life a lifelong or at many lifelongs 
uh, work journey. on oneself, yes, a journey. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Oh, let me. You just, know what? Just, I, I just want to ahead. add one little thing here, which which might help to clarify uh, some aspects of the process. Um, I've really I've really seen that there is a difference in the mind state of expectation and aspiration, but those two often get confused. So it's very possible to have, you know, noble aspirations for enlightenment, for awakening, for service, for lots of things that are really beneficial and wholesome. Uh, but that aspiration, I see that aspiration as setting the direction. Expectation is a kind of craving to have a particular experience that we want happening now. Yeah. You know, but of course things don't happen that way. Things happen when the conditions are right for them to arise. And so it's quite quite possible and even important to learn how to hold the aspiration because that's what energizes us. That's, that's what uh, inspires us to hold the aspiration, but without expectation in the moment that it should look a certain way. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so for me, that distinction became yeah. very helpful. S central to the Bhagavad Gita as well. <laughs> uh -huh. Yes, <laughs> to act without attachment to the fruit of the action. Yeah. Uh, let me just stop here for a second. I'm just going to mm -hmm. look. Uh, there's something shaking in uh, with your yes. mic. I'm not sure what it is. Well, the, uh, I'm sitting in a chair and uh, what everything is on, it's not solid. So oh, the, <laughs> so the when, you, that, the, when you make a motion, it shakes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so okay. I'll try not to make a motion. Yeah. Don't move. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Joseph, one of the things that um, that came to me through a, uh, actually through a podcast uh, that I did a couple of weeks ago it was with uh, a man named Robert Svoboda I don't know if you know who Robert is no. he, he wrote these books on uh, Agora which is the tantric left hand path of these yogis in India and his teacher was an incredible being he was over there while we were there in the 70s and he wrote these books. And the third of the third book, which I highly recommend, I've been telling him on people on almost every podcast, uh, is called "The Law of Karma," spelled out uh, by his teacher, whose name is Vimalananda. And uh, it was just, it was a kind of insightful chat uh, talk that we had back and forth that propelled me to think this this needs to be fleshed out because I think. There's such a gross misunderstanding about karma, the laws of karma, what karma is, what effects they have, all the way down to the kinds of things we're talking about right now. Predilection for desire systems in a, in a certain um, individual individualization of how that works for us. What are they predicated on? What is our patterns predicated on? and so on and so forth, and uh, reactions and action. So I, I, I just, uh, I was actually reading um, Mindfulness, your book, which 
I don't know how many times we've we've that there's so much material. It's a very big book, of course. It is a big book, <laughs> and there's so much in there that uh, we we could do ten, twenty, thirty, forty podcasts about it, and, uh, and still not exhaust the material. Uh, but I was looking through it, and uh, one of the things that I thought would be uh, interesting to bring up in relation to this whole thing around karma, and and we can talk about how how you see that, but it was around dependent origination, particularly, um, and uh, that that whole chapter um, in the book. But uh, just to give you an idea of why I was uh, inspired by this, uh, and we were just talking about the Bhagavad Gita, and in the Bhagavatam, which is where the Gita comes from, Krishna says, karma is the guru. In fact, Nay, it is the Supreme Lord. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'd i like to get from you a little bit of, of your, uh, where do you sit with an explanation of karma and, and uh, how, it, uh, how you work with it in terms of the practice that you have been doing and, and what you share with people. Um, if you don't mind, just how karma <laughs> shapes our experience of the world. Yeah. So this is a huge topic. Yeah. yeah no. Well, we we're just and not, inching not our that, way in. Uh, so uh, yeah. So I, I'll just talk about it in a way that is not at all exhaustive of it. Yeah, you know, just kind of the things that are coming to mind in the moment. Yeah. Um, so, in a way that for me simplifies it, is simply to realize that every mind state that arises, which you know, is arising in every moment, every, every moment of consciousness is colored one way or another by different qualities, whether they're the unwholesome ones of greed and hatred and delusion and envy and jealousy and pride, and you know, all of that, or whether the mind states are conditioned by the wholesome qualities of love, generosity, you know, wisdom, metta, loving kindness, compassion, it's very clear that every time a mind state arises, it's conditioning the mind in that way, you know? And I mean, one of, one of the ways of understanding it is that every time a particular state arises, it becomes easier for that state to arise again. You know, and so you could even think of it in terms of, uh, you know, neuroscience, not that my knowledge of neuroscience is so great, but, you know, the understanding that there are neural pathways being created in the brain, depending on what is happening in our consciousness, and that different neural pathways are either strengthened or weakened, depending on the repetition of the particular mindset. So this is really the establishment of habit, Mm. you know, and every time we do something, the habit of that becomes stronger. And so we can understand karma 
uh, and the, the lore of it and the, the importance of it uh, in that we want to take care with what habits of mind are being cultivated, what neural pathways are being strengthened because each one creates its own kind of inner mental environment. So, you know, we talk about, we talk about polluting the external environment, mm. but do we think about polluting the inner environment? And we talk about, uh, you know, purifying the external environment. And can we purify the internal environment? Uh, and it becomes very clear, you know, when we pay attention if we notice the difference between how it feels when the mind is filled with greed and when we're being generous. So, so we don't have to wait necessarily for some you know, future life to be reaping the, the fruits of our karma. We can see it in the moment. Uh, in many cases, you know, not, not in all cases, but in many cases, we experience the ease or the peace of wholesome mind states. And we can experience the suffering of unwholesome ones. Now, what feels better to be filled with hatred or to be filled with love? <laughs> so just in understanding this, that in each moment we're creating uh, the inner mental environment can inspire us to take care with what's being created. Mm. knowing that it's going to have an effect. It's, it's not something that happens in isolation, you know, from the rest of the unfolding process. It is actually each moment is conditioning the, the process. Um, so that's basically how I see it. Yeah. Here's a, uh, yeah, no, go ahead. I was just, it's, what came to mind was another, this is another uh, concept that often, in the West, some people have problems with, even though within Buddhism, it's, it's a pretty uh, important uh, understanding. And that, that's the whole concept of merit. Mm. You know, and merit is the, trans, it's the English translation and perhaps not such a good one uh, for the Pali word punya. And basically it means the fruit of unwholesome, the fruit of wholesome actions. You know, and so whenever we do something with a wholesome state of mind, it will bring good results, right? Either in the moment or in the future. But one of the one of the definitions of uh, merit, which I really like, uh, it was described as provisions for the journey. You know, and kind of the accumulation of wholesome karma provides the field you know necessary for all the good things in our life both external things internal mind states and awakening it all comes from the the, the strengthening of what could be called merit or or wholesome wholesome qualities uh, so this is another aspect of karma mm. Yeah, that, I, that actions I, actually do bring results. Yeah, I never, uh, I, you said it at the very beginning, a difficult concept for mm -hmm. us in the West, merit. And yeah. I myself, although, I, I mean, 
I'm I'm no huge knowledge base around Buddhist concepts, but I you know have, have some. Yeah. I've spent some time with you and Sharon and Jack and and other uh, Tibetan teachers. And merit has been there, and it has been like an invisible concept. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Until this. Well, I think <laughs> until this moment. That's all. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, I th I think it's important, and I I would imagine again. I'm I'm uh, like like you with regard to Buddhism, you know, with regard to Hinduism and and Hindu teachings. Um, uh, I don't, my knowledge is not that great, but I would imagine that the concept of merit is very much in those teachings as well. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but for me, it's, it, um, the problem is that the English word, uh, you know, it conjures up, it conjures up notions of getting gold stars for good behavior or something. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. and, and, and not understood properly, uh, you know, it might it might be conflated with uh, selfish greed or something like that. But in more deeply understanding the the concept, it's more a question of understanding what causes and conditions bring about what results. Yeah. So it's really not different than eating healthy food in order to have a healthy body. Right. You know, it's like there's a there's a cause and effect relationship. Yeah. And that's true of all of our mind states. So to appreciate that uh, is very joyous because uh, we actually can uh, empower ourselves you know, to be walking on a path that leads to greater and greater happiness, providing provisions for the journey. Mm. Yeah. Um, Just one more, one more thought that comes to mind. Yeah. <laughs> and the more provisions we have on the journey, the more provisions we can share on the journey. And so that also becomes a powerful inspiration, you know, for the practice of what's good. Yeah. So there's uh, here's an interesting thing from from the book I was referring to. Uh, even awareness itself is a karma producing activity when your self self identification, which is called ahamkara, I believe in Sanskrit, the force which self identifies identifies with it. So the awareness identifies with it. Inaccurate perception encourage, encourages tighter bondage. Proper perception promotes freedom. As, uh, as self-identification, ahamkara, solidifies your individual identity, it also solidifies your attachments to your previous karmas and your current actions. All the action you have performed and with which your ego self-identified act as seeds act as seeds for karmic reactions, each of which will take its own time to mature and bear fruit. So this idea of even awareness is a karmic producing activity, can be, I guess. 
and mm-hmm. and in in your book there is a whole chapter around conditioned n- nature of perception and i think there's a real um connection here and if you can uh maybe bring it out based on on what you wrote in the book yeah um i mean the the passage you read seemed quite um profound you know and uh, it would t- it would take a lot to actually unpack everything that, in that thing, was yeah. said in that paragraph. Uh, but some of the things that came to mind as you were reading it, um, it is interesting the the nature of awareness, uh, and even within Buddhism, different schools have different have different takes on the nature of awareness. So it's not that there's a unified understanding among all the different Buddhist traditions of its ultimate nature, but all would agree as was indicated in in the passage you read, uh, that whatever one's understanding of the nature of awareness is, it's not something to be identified with as being self. And yet, even as we see the impermanent nature of phenomena, you know, and we can learn to let go of identification to some extent, at least, with the physical sensations and with thoughts and emotions, we see that as being impermanent and perhaps get glimpses of their impersonal condition, non-self nature, we still very easily uh, become identified with the one who's knowing it all. So we're observing all this and we're understanding all these things, but we're identifying with the awareness of it. And so we're reifying, we're both reifying awareness and we're also creating a sense of self or I in the identification with it. And so then the I of awareness becomes the reference point for all the observation. Uh, and so cutting through that identification with awareness is really an important part of the practice. And uh, in, in my book, I, in different places, I talk about how to cut through the identification with consciousness, mm-hmm. with awareness. Um, so just to mention maybe a few uh, yeah, a few that ways of doing that very yeah. briefly. Yeah, please. Uh, so one way, and this, this is part of the unfolding of insight in Vipassana practice, is we can begin at different times to see, and to really experience consciousness itself as arising and passing in each moment. So we're seeing the impermanent nature of consciousness. And so that, that cuts through then, or helps to cut through the identification with it, because we're seeing its impermanent nature. We can also see it, and this is uh, found in some of the Zen traditions or Tibetan Dzogchen tradition. Uh, and it's a practice I like a lot and use in, use in my practice, where they'll suggest um, to look for awareness. You know, the question, can you find it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a famous Zen dialogue, which, which I really love. 
you know, a student came to see Bodhidharma when he was still living in his cave. Uh, you know, he was in his cave for nine years facing a wall, uh, as the story goes. Uh, and this student came to him and said, you know, please teach me, I'm, I'm suffering a lot. Um, please tranquilize my mind. And Bodhidharma says to him, um, show, show me your mind and I'll pacify it. And the student says, well, I've looked for it everywhere and I can't find it. And then Bodhidharma says, there, it's already pacified. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's the, not the non-findability of the mind. You know, when we look for it, when we look for the knowing, when we look for awareness, there's no thing to find. And yet the knowing is still there, but it can't be found. And in that moment of recognizing its unfindability, there is no identification with it. So it really brings us back to uh, what I call the zero center. You know, instead of, instead of the center of our experiencing being one, I'm using numbers now to, you know, as a metaphor. So instead of the one of the observer, it's the zero center where there's no self, no I, no reference point. Um, so I kind of lost the train of what we were discussing in this <laughs> no, that, in this little rap. That's because we got into zero point, which right. is a scary concept of no reference <laughs> uh, whatsoever. Well, well, let me let me let me just give you another teaching which may um, make it a little less scary. And this, this is a teaching from Kala Rinpoche, one, one of the great Tibetan masters. He said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you understand this, you see that you are nothing. Being nothing, you are everything. Hmm. That is all. You know, and so often Fantastic. people people stop with the "you are nothing" and don't realize the implication of being nothing, which is becoming everything. Yeah, <laughs> it's like what's left when we are nothing. What's left is everything. Yeah, and so that gives a whole different flavor to the experience of it. Yeah, well, and that's people's uh, constant. A misunderstanding of emptiness. Yes, yes. It's nihilistic. It's it's ah, uh, and and my my best um, uh, story around that that well, it said it all to me. I've repeated this quite a few times, but I was with Roshi Joan Halifax. I think you know, mm -hmm. and uh, doing a podcast, and it just came to me. She spent so much time with Ramdas. She's so close mm -hmm. to him, but she's yeah. she's an ultra. Zen person. Yes. I mean, uh, yes. Really, uh, something. Yes. She's a something yeah. else. Okay, that's all uh -huh. I got to say about her. And I said, What do you think about Neem Karoli Baba? Uh -huh. I mean, you, you're always around Ramdas. He's got pictures everywhere, his stories. You've been in all, the, all, all these events with him. Uh, 
And she said, when I look into look at his picture and I look into his eyes, mm-hmm. I see emptiness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and in that moment, I went right. Yes. Empty of self. Empty yes. of duality. Empty. Yes. This is what emptiness. And it was full of unconditional yes. love. Yes. And it made it so clear to me what exactly you know yes. we were talking yes. about. Exactly. Yeah. Um, we're talking about re- we're back to reality a little bit, uh, <laughs> getting real. Um, so uh, again, from from this uh, from Robert's book, the essence of living with reality is to continually, continually surrender to what is. Surrenders, of course, mm-hmm. that's like merit. That's a bad, <laughs> a bad right. term. Uh, yeah. You have already created your own personal universe with your karmas, and now you must live in it. Everyone who has sown the wind will eventually reap the whirlwind. That's kind of a cute line. However, most people try to ride out their karmic storms by barricading themselves inside psychological houses. No building, however weatherproof, can withstand every tornado, earthquake, flood, and conflagration. Almost everyone accordingly finds himself or herself existentially homeless one day or another and i to me this was a great you know succinctly putting what we do to ourselves uh in 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 relation to um not surrendering to what is and and um and and not understanding all of the tendencies that we've developed just even in this lifetime never mind previous mm-hmm. lifetimes which is a whole other thing um so uh i i wonder if you can't uh, address that and maybe in the way of some of the practices that you you've yourself used and and what uh, you might suggest to, to uh, students about the way that we do barricade ourselves uh by uh shying away from just being with the moment Well, I think it's, it relates a lot to what we've been talking about, you know. Um, I, see it, I see it relating in two ways, that we barricade ourselves first in the very notion of self, you know, that this, there's someone, some substantial being inside who I am, and then we try to protect it or defend it or aggrandize it or satisfy it or gratify it. And it's all revolving around this notion of I, of some being. And, and that's the essential contraction. You know, instead of the zero center, we are living in the self center. Mm. You know, and that's our whole world revolves around this self center. Uh, and it's it's kind of interesting, even in conventional language and understanding, even though philosophically we might have a hard time understanding selflessness, you know, it's not, it's not, that's not an easy concept to um, really embody or, or understand deeply. But on some level, we all do intuitively know the problem the problem of it, for example, just in the way we use language, 
we all know that, you know, when someone is self-centered, it's not a desirable quality. You know, it's, if, if we have a friend who's very self-centered, we might, you know, think they uh, might benefit from some therapy, <laughs> you know, to become a little less self-centered. But it has a much deeper meaning than just the, the ordinary understanding of it. It's whether there is a self at the center of our way of being in the world. And that's the deepest kind of self-centeredness. And that is a limitation and a contraction, you know, and then we try to do everything, as I said, to protect it or defend it or satisfy it. So the freedom as, you know, from the passage you read is freeing ourselves first from that concept or that notion or that felt experience of a self at the center of everything and dropping more, even if it's just for moments at a time into the zero center where things are just arising out of causes and conditions, the karmic unfolding. So that's the first, the first aspect of greater freedom. And then the second is when we're in that process and perhaps it's all unfolding um, more or less selflessly for a bit, uh, but then to see how that habit of leaning into the unfolding mm. is coloring everything. So that's another kind of, um, we could say a contraction or another kind of unease. And that's where what we were talking about earlier, even if the moments of dropping back, there's nothing to want because whatever we want will also just be passing away. So we drop back into the selfless not wanting <laughs> of everything. So it's not, you know, as you was, as you were pointing out, it's not that it becomes this gray vacuity. It's the fullness of life. Everything, everything is there, mm. but it's not revolving around the self center and we're not caught in the wanting to become. And so we really do get taste. And I want to repeat again, this, uh, mentioned it many times now it's powerful to even have moments of this not wanting we don't have to think of it as some far-off aspiration it's just for a few moments can you know in our practice in our life can we drop back not wanting and this is something else that i found really useful in my own meditation to when I have those moments of not leaning in to becoming, but just back in the flow of experience, not wanting, then to actually investigate or look at what is the quality of the mind in that not wanting? You know, what is, what is the nature of that not wanting mind? And we see very clearly, we can see very clearly that it's really a mind of great peace. But then it becomes experiential, not, 
not some philosophic description. We're actually experiencing the peace of not wanting and the stress of wanting. You know, so it becomes very real. And again, it might be just for a few short moments at a time, but it can be transformative. Totally. And uh, this, to me, is, of course, why we suggest to people to take some time in their, in their lives, take a week or two, go to IMS <laughs> in Barry, and, and uh, Joseph will take care of you. Although not, <laughs> he stepped back a little bit, but he has people who take care of you. All yes, right. yes. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, but certainly for that reason, it's the reason I've gone to India. I that I, yeah. I pretty much do my retreat in India and uh -huh. spent it. Uh, and you know, more recently uh, with uh, this uh, yogi I was talking about. By the way, it's interesting because you keep dropping back to the zero, mm -hmm. and uh, every time you said that, I'm reminded. I forget somebody I was with said to him where 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 do you get to you know you're you're obviously samadhi is there and all that uh -huh. he says he goes like this zero uh -huh. <laughs> yes <laughs> so, yes so it's an interesting uh, yeah thing, I, I, I have really found zero to be a very uh a very powerful metaphor for the practice. And so I'll just, uh, just a little anecdote about zero. Mm. Uh, I was in a bookstore one time and I was just browsing. I came across this book. The, the title was The Nothing That Is. And so that title just, I mean, I had to buy the book, <laughs> you know, The Nothing That Is. Mm. So the book is really about the history of the number zero. And the opening line of the book, the opening couple of lines said, when you look at zero, when you look at zero, you see nothing. When you look through it, you see the world. Wow. And it just, it's, and the whole rest of the book became a little too mathematical for me, but it was worth that one line. <laughs> the book was worth those first two lines. Mm. When you look at zero, you see nothing. When you look through it, you see the world. And that's so much, such an apt description of the nature of the non-wanting mind. Mm. You know, and mm. So there's one, other, there's one other little meditative exercise. Mm. Uh, it, it's peripherally related, uh, but which I found really helpful. And maybe you know, some people listening to the podcast uh, would like to experiment with it. Um, what I found really interesting is just in the course of daily life. So this is not being on retreat. It's not even particularly, you know, informal sitting. Just when I'm walking around, uh, I will often make a point of trying to notice the quickly passing thoughts in the mind. You know, the very light ones, the ones that are not disturbing, they're not big dramas. They're just, you know, you're going for a walk and I don't think you might think of things you have to do or things in the past. But so quickly passing light on one level, not a problem. What I found was 
that was very interesting to really start paying attention and becoming mindful even of those quickly passing light non-problematic thoughts i learned a few really interesting things one is that many of those thoughts even though they were not super impactful because they were quickly passing many of them contain some notion of self of i you know what we want to do what we some memories or some plans so there was there was an i often embedded in the content of the thought when we're not aware of those thoughts as being just thoughts even though they're not particularly disturbing in the moments that they're there and we're lost in them we are reinforcing the sense of self we're, we're creating and strengthening that notion but it often goes unnoticed because those thoughts are not particularly disturbing you know so they don't they don't necessarily call us to be mindful and i was reminded uh do you know the experience sometime when you wake up in the morning uh you wake up and then maybe you drop back to sleep for a moment too and you have a you know a momentary dream mm. and then you wake up again and then you're awake well i realized that through the course of the day with all of these quickly passing thoughts it is exactly like falling back into that dream state for just those moments because in those moments we're not aware that the thought is there we're just in it but it doesn't last long and it doesn't bother us too much which is why we mostly ignore them but what i realized by paying attention and keeping an eye out for them to realize how many times in the course of a day it's really quite pervasive you know these these light thoughts are happening countless times in a day and each time they're arising it's like we're dreaming ourselves into existence for those moments we're back in a dream state we're not aware either of the fact that we're thinking or what where we actually are in that moment because we've be, we've been pulled into that thought world right? and so it's like being in the dream and the dream often revolves around some notion of self. And so that became a little mantra for me. Oh, I'm just dreaming myself into mm -hmm. existence. Mm -hmm. And it was a it's a great reminder through the day uh to keep an eye out for those and it's it's tremendously entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love to do it because it it so reveals uh how much of the time we are lost in a dream that we're not really awake to to the moment mm. yeah so it's i just i find it a, a very uh, engaging practice mm. and uh, just referring to some of the things we've been talking about around karma this is a these kind of subtle mind yes. states create yes. our yes. world here yes yeah. and uh yeah exactly yeah yeah well there's one thing before we you know we're I'm keeping you here, but before we close, um, when we talk about all of, we've been talking about 
getting real. We've been talking about how karma affects us on a day-to-day basis and, and our awareness factor and self-identification. I think there's one thing in, in the book, um, mindfulness. It's another Buddhist phrase that's very difficult, yet I have spent, I would say, more time with it than almost any other because I find it is it has within it uh, real solutions to having a perspective that can allow uh, some of this reification that we're talking about, some of the reinforcement of the uh, of of the uh, the big me movie, the I. Uh, and I'd love for you to talk about it. And it's dependent origination. Uh, you, you can give us a two-sentence uh, explanation and definition of <laughs> dependent origination. But no, just a, just a little, Joseph. I know this is a huge topic, and it's a big uh, section of the book. And uh-huh. but everybody, go out there and buy this book, okay, so you know what the <laughs> hell Joseph's talking about. But yeah, dependent origination, because I think it goes a long way. It can help to have an awareness of of. of yeah, concept. well, as you said, this is one of the deepest and most profound aspects of the Buddhist teaching. So hmm. uh, even the, the Buddha admonished Ananda, his, his, you know, uh, his cousin and attendant and very beloved uh, monk in the Buddhist times, uh, when Ananda was saying... Uh, you know, how much he appreciated and understood the law of dependent ori- origination. And the Buddha said, don't say so, Ananda. This teaching is deep and profound. <laughs> so this will just be kind of the, the lightest of uh, uh, forays into it. And basically, it does have to do with, uh, with the karmic unfolding and the way the whole process unfolds. Um, and the Buddha, the Buddha discovered this, you know, in the night of his enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, when he was uh, confronted with the question of, uh, basically, the question of suffering and what, what was what was the essential cause of suffering, you know, and he traced it back um, through various links, you know. Um, And so just there's just one, one, one uh, catchy uh, little teaching, which it, it, it always, the op- it's so obvious that we often overlook it. But when the Buddha, when the Buddha asks, what is the cause of death? The Buddha said, the cause of death is birth. that whatever is born will also die Uh, and so then there are a lot of links in between so just to give a few an example of a few links in this chain of dependent origination is that it's usually described as 12 links of how one thing leads to another and so often in the meditation world uh, we highlight a few a few of these links because it highlights the place where 
it highlights how the links can lead to suffering or how that chain can be broken at certain points. So for example, uh, one of the links in the chain is just the experience of sense contact. You know, this contact in seeing and hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling in the body, thoughts. So this contact with the sense object. So that's one of the links. The Buddha said, because of contact, or wherever there is contact, there is also a feeling tone that in that contact, it's always experienced as being either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, neither pleasant or unpleasant. So in the chain of dependent origination, contact goes to feeling. So the next link in the chain, the Buddha pointed out, and this is something that we really want to observe for ourselves, experience for ourselves, that conditioned by pleasant feeling without mindfulness, the next link uh, becomes desire. You know, okay. And this is common. Most of us want what's pleasant and don't want what's unpleasant. So contact conditions feeling, feeling unmindfully experience conditions craving, craving then conditions the next link, which is clinging, which then goes to becoming, which then goes to rebirth. So the whole unfolding happens through these links of dependent origination. But right there in that moment of noticing feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, if we're actually mindful of that, oh, pleasant, pleasant, unpleasant. If we're mindful of it, then we don't need to go to desire for the pleasant or aversion to the unpleasant. We can simply be in the experience, oh, pleasant. We're just mindful. We're experiencing this pleasant without wanting. We can experience unpleasant without wanting. And right there is a doorway to freedom. You know, we've, that, that's a place in the chain hmm. where, where we can... Uh, break the chain of conditioning that leads to suffering. Uh, so this is just kind of a very broad, uh, you know, overview or suggestion of how it works and where we might apply it in our practice. Um, there's, <laughs> there's one teaching of the Buddha, which I just, every time I read it or think about it, it sort of makes me sit up straight <laughs> in terms of understanding the uh, magnitude of the practice. You know, this is no small thing. It, if the aspiration is liberation, you know, if, if the aspiration is really freedom, this is not a small thing. You know, this is a radical transformation of the conditioning of our minds. And so the Buddha highlighted what's necessary for complete liberation. And he said, and this, this is the teaching that always uh, both inspires me and, and encourages. He said, as long as there's attachment to the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant, liberation is impossible. 
So that's quite a statement. <laughs> because as we know from our own experience, this attachment to pleasant and aversion to unpleasant is pretty deeply rooted. Moment to moment. Exact, exactly. And so even if not to think, not to wait until the final eradication of attachment and aversion, but in a moment we can taste it. Yeah. Yeah. And that goes back to a little bit of, of what uh, we were saying, you were saying before, this is not something that in one fell swoop, it's all going to just transform because yes, that is yes. not the nature of practice. It yes. is... And and any moment that we can get to the zero mm-hmm. <laughs> of yeah, the zero exactly. is is a beautiful moment, and and those moments they inform the next moments, and and in yes. my mind they change, they absolutely can change karma, uh, they can inform karma. Yes, yes, because you yes. have that in that intention is there. And uh, and it it's not just oh that's just a little thing that happened, no it's a it's actually a big thing, yes. because it builds it's like building blocks and a lifetime of those building blocks makes a I mean, the Tibetans say the whole deal here is to prepare for that one moment when you <laughs> die, yeah. and where's your consciousness going to be in that moment? Yeah. yeah. So just just another uh, kind of metaphor or simile. <laughs> uh, for this whole process, it's like go to a movie, you know, and get totally engrossed in the story. And so that you could see that as the comic unfolding of our lives. You know, we're lost in the story of our lives and our personalities. But maybe for people who meditate a bit, uh, or maybe others, you know, every once in a while you're in a movie and having been completely absorbed in the story, which is the whole point of going, uh, but maybe there are certain moments when you realize, oh, this is just a movie. Nothing is really going on. You know, nobody's getting chased, nobody's getting killed, nobody's falling in love, nobody is... (laughs) (laughs) Whatever, whatever the story of the movie is. It's just a movie, it's just pixels of light on a screen. And we might have a moment of remembering that and then it reabsorbed in the story. But that moment has revealed something about the nature of reality. So even though it may be just a moment, that's a powerful seed for not taking the story to be so real. Mm. Uh, yeah. And this is, we are lost in the movies of our minds. We are lost in the stories of our lives. And so to have these moments of whatever we call it, the zero center, you know, or moments of not wanting, we drop, we drop out of the story for a moment and we, we actually experience or taste another whole level of reality. Mm-hmm. So as you said, these moments, even if they're short, can be transformative. Yeah. It, it's kind of like a breath of fresh air after you've been exactly, inside. Yes, yes. And you go outside, and and you're just in that complete. You are complete in that moment of breathing mm-hmm. in that fresh yes. air. Yeah, 
Hey, listen, if you could do one more little thing, Joseph, mm-hmm. I know it would be great to have just maybe a, a couple, of, a short few-minute uh, practice designed for basically... I'm, I'm, Everybody. I, yeah. Well, no, I was going to say, <laughs> I'm I'm giving you a specific thing that you can just turn out like a, mm-hmm. you know, like a computer. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but I'm thinking about all of us on a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis, and... Um, we may be going through something and uh, an untoward word from a co-worker, a call from a, 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 a wife or husband, a child, uh, annoying, whatever it may be that, that grabs our attention. Um, just a, a, a way to, in the moment, just sit in, in as quiet a place as you can get or, or just walk mm-hmm. somewhere where a, a little bit of a practice that we can engage back uh, behind the uh, movie of me, mm-hmm. as Christian Doss likes to call it. Uh, I like that, the movie of me. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, we'll just do a yeah. couple of minutes of, of a basic, basic practice of being aware and awake. Uh, So uh, in whatever posture you may be in, as you've been listening, you can relax back into that posture, whether it's sitting or standing. You might let the eyes close gently, although it's also possible to sit with the eyes open. And just get a sense of the body in that posture. Is a phrase that I like to use which helps to ground this awareness. There is a body. There is a body. And that becomes a framework for allowing whatever experience of the body there is to emerge. There is a body. Feel the sensations of the posture. You might feel the sensations of the body breathing. No expectations, no wanting. There is a body. In that awareness, there is a body what is revealed. Different sensations, feeling of the breath. Within that framework, there is a body you might hear sounds. Notice any quickly passing thoughts or images, seeing how they arise and pass. How empty they are of substance. There is a body.
being with whatever arises, without wanting, without expectation. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. Resting in the zero center of not wanting. And then pervading the space of open emptiness. The thoughts and feelings of loving kindness and compassion. May all beings live happily and at peace. Perhaps feeling the breath at the heart center. radiating the wish. May all beings everywhere live happily and at peace. When you feel ready, you can open your eyes and engage with that same quality of feeling with the world around you. Thank you, Joseph. You're very You're welcome. Beautiful. So, <laughs> got into a little bit of the zero here. <laughs> Not good for a talky podcasty. Uh, we'll see you next week. Buy this, but do do get Joseph's book, Mindfulness. I can't more readily suggest something that would be helpful on a day to day basis. And uh, thanks so much for being here, Joseph. You're very welcome. We we did get into some. Uh... Yeah. Interesting depths. Yes, no, we did, we did. So this this is uh, mind rolling, and uh, Raghu and I will be back next week, and uh, we look forward to seeing you there. Go to beherenownetwork.com, and you go to mind rolling. Then we're going to have all the information on like how to get Joseph's book and some of the other things we're talking about. We're going to have that all available as links to make it easy and some show notes. And um, we'll see you next time. Hmm.